had some uh, wonderful worship this morning, and between them, Cedar and um, and Beck, Beck with a K, have managed to give you about half of my sermon, which is okay. I can skip over those bits. I'll say, remember what Beck said about that? That's what she meant. That's what I'm about to say now. So that's just the Lord speaking to us this morning as we look at his word. We're talking about prayer. We're talking about prayer over these next few weeks as we begin the year and talk about the importance of that. As Jesus says to his disciples, when you pray, pray like this. When you pray, pray this way. And he gives us an example of prayer. Last week we talked about the importance of prayer. It's prayer is our way of partnering with God, not just to change us, but to change our world. Asking for God's kingdom to come and for God's will to be done here as it is in heaven, which suggests that things here on earth are not the way God wants them to be. There are things to be done. There is work to be done. Things are not perfect in this world. Things are not right. But God is in the business of working with people to make them right. The prayer that we look at here where Jesus teaches us the Our Father prayer, sometimes called the Lord's Prayer or the Disciples' Prayer. I like to call it the Kingdom Prayer because at its heart it's asking for God's kingdom to come. This Kingdom's Prayer is about asking for stuff. It's petitionary. We're asking God for things. And so is the first part of it. Hallowed be thy name is a request. It's asking God to work with us to help us to make his name holy or to keep his name holy. Let's look at the opening verse. Our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven. I would like everybody, please, to use your hand and point to heaven. Which way is heaven? Some of you haven't put your hands up at all. Oh, Peter's very, my friend Peter's very smart. He's saying it's this way. Someone was pointing down. The earth is a circle, so if we all pointed up at once, we'd be pointing in all directions at once, wouldn't we? In the ancient world, when the Bible, most of the scriptures were written, the Old Testament particularly, uh, the sky was seen as the place where God lives. So in English, the word sky and the word heavens are interchangeable. Actually, for most people, it was the same word. The sky was seen as the place where God lived. And actually in the part of Israel uh, where, where, the, where the Old Testament was written, the people there had the idea that the gods lived on top of really high mountains. You know those mountains that go up so high the clouds are on top all the time? The ancient people thought that was where the gods lived. And so in the Old Testament we hear about God riding on the clouds or coming down from the clouds or coming down from the mountains. The psalm says, To the hills I lift my eyes. Where do my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. They had this idea that God lived in the clouds on top of high mountains. Of course, at this point, humans have climbed all the mountains on earth and haven't found God. We've gone up really high into space. We've even sent some people to the moon and we didn't find God there either. The world is round, so if Jesus ascended into heaven from Jerusalem, from our point of view, he was going that way. So which way is heaven? And then it depends whether which way the earth is spinning at the time. It's, the thing is that heaven isn't up. 
And it's not down, it's not around us. Heaven isn't a place, it's a metaphor. And that's really annoying, isn't it? Heaven is a description of something transcendent, something beyond us. The idea that God is way bigger than us. He's different to us. He's completely beyond our physical world. And so for the peoples who wrote the Old Testament, that meant the heavens, the sky, a place that goes on forever and ever and ever, and a place where they could never go. So when they said God is in his heavens, they meant he's way up there and we can't get there. It's a metaphor. It's describing something. Of course, God does not live in heaven the way that you and I live in Queensland or Canada. It's not his address. God doesn't live in, you know, number three, Heaven Street. That's not how it works. Heaven is a description of his otherness that he's beyond our comprehension. It's a metaphor. And when we forget that a metaphor is a metaphor and start taking it literally, we end up making God smaller. We diminish his nature and his glory. Metaphors include the idea of something is like this, but it's not completely like that. Otherwise, the thing I'd be describing would be that. Does that make sense? No, it doesn't. I can see by your expression. So, for example, the Bible says that God is our rock. We sang that this morning. God is our rock. What does that mean? It's a metaphor. It means that God is solid. It means that God is reliable. It means that God has an unchanging nature. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's not fickle like sand or water that flows here and blows away and evaporates and changes. No, a rock is a rock. It's reliable and it stays there forever. It does not mean that God is made of minerals. Yes? So when we say God is our rock, we don't mean he's made of granite. We don't mean that he's as dumb as a brick. We don't mean that if we hit him hard enough with a hammer, he'd break into lots of small pieces. When we say God is a rock, we use the metaphor to describe how God is like a rock. But the other bits about being a rock, God's not like that at all. Other places in the scripture, we read that God is like a hen who gathers her chicks under her wings. We have a picture of God as caring or loving or protecting. It is God's natural inclination to draw people near. But you're missing the point if you think God is like Big Bird or that he has feathers or that he lays eggs. Do you understand what I'm saying now? We need to understand the bit of the metaphor that actually is talking about God and leave the rest aside. Whenever we talk about God, we have to use metaphors because God is so big that we cannot describe him accurately or simply. He is beyond description. All we can do is describe parts of him or aspects of him as we see him. I'm sure many of you are familiar with the story of the four blind men who encountered an elephant. They all met a different part of the elephant. And someone said to them, what is an elephant like? And one of them said, well, he's flappy and big like a banana leaf. Because that, ban- that blind man had hold of the elephant's ear. And the other one said, no, he's like a hose. He's got hold of the trunk. And another one says, no, God is like a tree trunk. He's got hold of the leg. Another one's going, no, an elephant is like a little bit of string with a bit of fluff on the end because he's got hold of the tail. 
Are they right? Yes, they're all right, but they're not seeing the whole picture. When we see God, we use metaphors to describe him because he's beyond our comprehension. So heaven is a metaphor for the transcendence of God. He is way out there. And in the same way, the words our Father are also a metaphor, metaphor, but for the imminence of God. Imminence means his closeness. So transcendence, he's way out there. Imminence, he's right up close. So in this same verse, Jesus is saying, our Father, the God who's right in close with us, is also the God who's way out there in space. Imminence means closeness, the nearness, the right here-ness. Jesus teaches us to call God our Father. Think of him as the one who loves us and cares for us and provides for us. The Father, our Father in heaven, the infinite creator, all-powerful God, who wants to be very close to us, to know us, to be in relationship with us. Now, if you think of other aspects of fathers, then you might be missing the point and making God less than he's meant to be. For instance, God isn't like your father in that he gets up at 6 o'clock in the morning, has his breakfast, goes to work at 7, and you don't see him again till dinner time. God isn't like that kind of father. Nor is God like the kind of father who, I don't know, mows the lawn every second Tuesday. He's not like that. Nor is he the kind of father who barracks for a football team and shouts at the screen. Those aspects of fatherhood perhaps aren't so much to deal with God. And when we make God just like our earthly fathers, we make him smaller. We diminish his nature. Our Father in heaven, Jesus teaches us to pray, hallowed be your name. Hallowed, an old English word which means to keep something holy, to keep something special. Holy means holy or special or different or separate. We're describing God as this person who is other than us, different to us, special to us, separate from us. He is not like us in so many ways. He is holy. And what is it we're called to keep holy? It's his name. Hallowed be your name. And Beck talked about that this, already this morning, that the name of someone in the, in, the old, in the biblical times, the name of someone in the biblical times was not just the label we stuck on them, but it was their, it was their description, their character, their reputation. And people would change their names as things happened to them to reflect how they had changed. And so the name that we give to God or the name that the label that we stick on God actually is his character, his reputation. As I talked about in the kids' time, the, the name of God, Yahweh, this special holy name. And so we're really praying, Father, help us to keep your glorious reputation special. Help us to show your nature as distinct and beautiful and other and amazing. This is a repeated theme through the Old Testament. In Exodus chapter 20 and verse 7, the fourth commandment, the fourth of the Ten Commandments says, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. For the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. 
Although that loses some power for us people who, we want, we want King James when we want commandments, don't we? Thou shalt not. We want the old English, we want the powerful words, which, by the way, was old when it was written. The people who wrote the King James deliberately chose old words so that it would have more power and have more gravitas and be a stronger version. So if you think the old King James is hard to understand, the people at the time had trouble understanding it. Anyway, but in the King James it says, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Taking the name of the Lord in vain. And yes, there are lots of different ways of doing that. It frustrates me so often when on television you hear people say, oh my God, that drives me wild. Probably because of the way I was raised. And as a result, when my children say it, I go, we don't say that. That's not part of our culture. People take the name of the Lord Jesus in vain and use it as a swear word. They're taking something holy and sacred and turning it into something mundane and disgusting and awful. They're taking the name of the Lord in vain. They're cursing. They're taking God's name and his reputation and character and making it something ordinary and bringing it down. But taking the name of the Lord in vain means much more than just cursing or swearing or using words inappropriately. If you take someone's name, it means you take on their reputation. One of my... um, one of my favourite characters from history is a man called um, Winfield Scott. Winfield Scott was a general in the United States. He fought the Mexicans from... And then when the American Civil War started, he was 80-something years old. He was enormously fat. He couldn't sit on a horse. And President Lincoln said to him, you are in command of the army, go and conquer the South. And he said, President Lincoln, I'm far too fat and far too old to do that. So he handed power over to a bunch of other generals and they took over. One of the generals he handed power to was also named Winfield Scott, but his name was Winfield Scott Hancock. He'd been named after the old general. He was 60 years his younger, but he'd been named after the old man. And the old man said to him, I'm making you a general. Don't spoil my name and I won't spoil yours. Yes? Don't spoil my name and I won't spoil yours. And Winfield Scott Hancock went out and be one of the great generals of the Civil War. But that's, I could talk about him for 20 minutes, but that's not what you've paid me to do. When we take someone's name, we take on their reputation. We take on their all that we are. So I've got some grounds children down here at the front. They have my name. They have my reputation. We share it together. I bring them glory. They bring me lots of glory. Between us, we share a name. God's people share the name of God. And so when God says to his people, you have my name, don't take it in vain. Don't bring disgrace to me and I won't bring disgrace to you. We read in Ezekiel chapter 36 that this did not always go to be the case. So God says through the prophet Ezekiel, he says, I will show the holiness of my great name which has been profaned among the nations. That means it has been brought low and covered in mud. It has been profaned among the nations. And he says, the name that you have profaned among them. He says, you people with my name, you've put mud all over it. You've disgraced me. He says, but 
Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I am proved holy through you before their eyes. God says to these people who share his name, you've brought disgrace on the family name, but I will clean you up and we'll work something out and we will demonstrate to all the nations around the holiness and the greatness of my name. God's people, these Israelites, were called to show God's holiness to the nations around them, to live differently from their neighbours, to show that their God was different, that he was the true and real God. And in the Old Testament, we have lots of strange laws that made sense in their cultural context that were ways of showing that God's people were different from the nations around them. One of the main ways that the people of Israel were meant to be different from all the other nations was that they were not supposed to have a king. God said to them, you don't need a king, I'm your king. And that was very strange because in those days every country had a king. And if you read the early chapters of, of Judges and Joshua in those times there, they got on okay most of the time without a king as long as they did what God said. Not having a king meant that they relied on God. But it's really hard to be different, isn't it? It's hard to stand out, whether at school or in the workplace. It's hard to be different to everyone else. And so eventually the Israelites said, you know, God, we want a king like everybody else. And God said, you don't need a king. And they said, well, God, we really want a king. And God said, you don't need a king. And they went on and on and on about it. And you can read this in First and Second Samuel. Eventually God says, fine, you can have a king, but by the way, it's not going to be good going to go bad. He's going to tax you. He's going to, he's going to conscript your sons. He's going <clears> to, <throat> your daughters, and all the rest of it. It's not going to go well, but the people said, we want a king. And God said, okay. And things from there go downhill and downhill and downhill. And over time, the Israelites stopped being different to the other nations. They stopped relying on God. They stopped worshipping him alone. They started worshipping other gods, and things went downhill. They became just like everyone else. But through the prophet Ezekiel, God promises there is coming a day when I am proved holy through you, my people, in front of all the nations. And this is repeated throughout the Old Testament. Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Isaiah, the other prophets, they look forward to a day when God will show his holiness through his people, when his holiness will be displayed as his laws are written on their hearts rather than on tablets of stone. And I would suggest to you that that is what Jesus is talking about in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. When Jesus says to his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus promises that his people will be empowered by the Holy Spirit to live differently. To be witnesses, to be holy, to the ends of the earth. Sometimes Christians behave differently to the rest of the world. Sometimes we wear strange clothes. Sometimes we have strange haircuts. We don't shave our beards or we do shave our beards or we shave certain parts of our beards and not the others. So we look different to everyone else. We don't cut our hair or we only wear certain kinds of clothing. We don't drink, we don't smoke, we don't have tattoos or whatever it is. We don't listen to fancy music or watch television shows. It is said that some people, some Christians are opposed to premarital sex because it might lead to dancing. 
And the church imposes a set of cultural ideas on ourselves to try and keep us different from the rest of the world, separate from this sinful and fallen world. But holiness is not about obeying arbitrary rules invented by people. It's about displaying the character of God. God doesn't care about your beard. He doesn't care so much about your clothes. He doesn't care about X, Y, and Z. I think God loves to dance. Holiness isn't about arbitrary rules. It's about displaying the character of God. What is the character of God? In 1 John we read that whoever does not love does not know God because, say it with me, because God is love. God is love. That is his nature. That is his character. That is who he is. He is love. But what is love? What does love look like? And John helps us again. In 1 John chapter 3 he says, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. and We ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. God's character, his love, is defined by the cross of Jesus Christ. And our call is to embrace that humble, servant-hearted, enemy-loving love. This overwhelming, this absurd, this ridiculous, this over-the-top, Love. Paul reminds us again, Ephesians, to say, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. When we pray, hallowed be your name, we're asking God to help us to bear his name properly, to not bear his name in vain. It is a request. We're saying, Father God, help me, help us to live in a way that's consistent with your holy name, your holy nature, your core character. That is love. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul talks about his church being a letter written not with ink but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone but on tablets of human hearts. Paul says that the church is God's love letter to the world. As we bear God's name, as we put his character on display, as we advance his reputation, God's will is done and his kingdom comes on earth. And Jesus says that this should be our first priority, to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all the other stuff will follow after. Our top priority is to be holy, to show God's nature, his reputation, to be transformed. Not something we just do on a Sunday or when we go to our Bible study groups or our different activities through the week. We are called to be witnesses wherever we are, whatever we're doing, to the holy love of God. Are there any questions this morning before I conclude? For those who are visiting with us, I'd like to stop and see if there are any questions in case I've said something upsetting or confusing 
or something you'd like to hear more on? Oh, yes. I'm deaf, you'll have to say louder. God's I think God's all for dancing, yes? Right where it leads to. Sure. No, that that was that was a joke about so yes. Yes. It was a very funny joke and some of you laughed. I appreciate that. No, uh so Mary is just saying about does God condone dance? What is your question? Sure. Yes. Sex is for marriage. Marriage is between one man and one woman. Yes? Dancing is okay. I'm pro it. You know, there are some churches they built deliberately on an angle. The floor is built on an angle so that if the church went bust, it couldn't be turned into a dance hall. Yes? These people were so adamant against dancing that when they built their floors, they built them at an angle so no one could dance in it. It's good for a theater or for rolling. It's good for bowling. I don't know what it's good for. The churches have invented arbitrary rules saying this is what holiness looks like. Yes? And usually it's cultural. It's nothing to do with what God wants at all. We could talk a lot about that. The power of religion. The power of the man at the front telling everybody what to do. Christianity should be about, I'm telling you what to do now. Listen to Jesus. Do what Jesus says. Don't listen to what I say. Listen to Jesus. Go and read Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. Commit it to heart and live it out. And if you do that, you'll never have to listen to another sermon again the rest of your life. Yes? By the way, if you can do that, let me know because I want to know how. You can come and preach the sermons. Any other questions? Why do we come to church? Are you asking that question or is your mum asking that question? That was you. I thought she was being a ventriloquist. So what's your question? Why do we come to church? Sorry? Sure. What's the value of church? Okay, so Verita's asking, if it's that simple that we should just love God and love each other, why do we come to church? Good question, Verita. Come next week and I'll tell you the answer. No. I often talk about our faith fingers, the different ways we hold our faith. Yes, our small finger is our private time with God, having a trusted friend who we go deep with, being part of a small group. This is helpful to my conclusion. Um, A small group where we study the word together and encourage each other when we go on mission and point others towards Jesus or serve people or help them. And then our thumb, I talk about being our church, gathering together to remind ourselves of what's really important. Human beings, imagine a bush for a campfire. You're out camping. You've got a lovely campfire, lots of red coals, all keeping each other warm. And then you reach in with a pair of tongs and take one of the coals out and set it aside. That one's going to go cold and dark very, very quickly. You pick it up and put it back into the fireplace, it will heat back up and go back alive. Left to our own devices, humans will fall into their old patterns, their old sinful ways. We need the church to remind us of truths that have been true for thousands of years, to 
to remind us of what's really real. So we can sit next to people, and people are watching from home. God bless you. If you can't come to church for various reasons, we love you. But if you're sitting at home because it's easier, you're missing out. You're missing out. You're missing out on hearing about the blessings of God. You're missing out on hearing about Eichhörnchen. You're missing, about, you're missing out on seeing the faces of our brothers and sisters as we worship together. You're missing out on hearing the babies cry, and seeing the kids run up and down the aisles. And you're missing out on seeing the lovely ladies, the lovely men giving each other hugs, warm handshakes and encouraging one another. There is so much more to church than watching from home. God bless you if that's your only option. We love you. But we encourage you to come and be part of our fellowship because this is where the warmth is. This is where we encourage each other. This is where we build each other up. And I could go another 20 minutes on that, but I think I should stop. Yes? If you have a burning question, come and speak to me after. And if you, by the way, if you bring me questions and I can't answer them, I'll turn it into a sermon in a couple of weeks' time. Yes? So I'd love to have questions like that. I'll say to you this morning, we are meant to be known. The church is meant to be known for our love because love is the nature of God and we have his name. We are the people of God. We are Christians. We are little Christs. We are meant to have his love. And when we pray, hallowed be your name, we're asking God to make us holy, to make us loving that we can bear his name well. The song I've chosen for reflection this morning simply says, Abba, Father, let me be yours and yours alone. Abba is an Aramaic word, a word that Jesus would have used or would have known from his villages. This is the word for daddy in the native language of that part of the world in those days. Abba, Father, Daddy, Father. Let me be yours and yours alone. May my will forever be evermore your own. Never let my heart grow cold. I chose this song before you asked that question. Very good. Never let me go. Abba, Father, let me be yours and yours alone. As we sing this song this morning, it's an opportunity for each and every one of us to reach out to our Abba, Father, and ask him to speak to us and direct us and call us closer to him. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. And Father God, I pray that your name would be hallowed in me and in my brothers and sisters. As we bear your name into this world, may we know your holiness. May we know your love. May we demonstrate that to this world. Help us to be different, to be holy. As you are different, Lord God, as you are holy, help us to share and show your love. Father, if there's anyone here this morning who does not know your presence, who does not know what it means to be your child, who does not know what it means to have your name, Father God, I pray that you'd come just now by your Holy Spirit and overwhelm them with your love. Bring them to a place of repentance and faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.